Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 98, verses 1 through 9, which can be found on page 483 in your pew Bibles or 935 in the large print. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 9. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for all that you have given to us. As we pause again to contemplate the mystery and the wonder of Christmas. God, we pray that you would help us to see that you do provide for everything that we need. That you have given us your word in written form, but you have given us your word in living form. God, that you have given us the one who could do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that we could be made right with you, that we could be with you forever. Lord, we pray this morning that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, now that by your word and by your spirit, you would change us ever more from the inside out into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 9. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Turning to our New Testament lesson, John 16. Verses 19 through 33, which can be found on page 877 in your pew Bibles, or 1678 in the large print. John 16, verses 19 through 33. Jesus talking with his disciples on the night when he is betrayed. It says, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while, you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her child, because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. 
Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you can see in the bulletin, we are continuing our series through 1 John, all of our titles beginning with the word why. This week it's why we rejoice. And you can see from the bulletin cover that the word is joy, and we've already lit the candle of joy this morning. And we have read uh, both from Psalms and from John, and the word joy and rejoice just keeps coming up again and again. So it might be a little strange, but the sermon text for the day actually doesn't use the word joy at all, or rejoice. And yet, and yet, it is uh, in 1 John where we find the reasons for our joy where it's grounded, where, why we can rejoice at all. In fact, John, uh, in this particular section, tells the readers why it is that he's writing this at all. Why is he writing to them? But this isn't the only place he says this in the letter. In fact, at the end of the letter, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's a good reason to write this. But at the beginning of the letter, he actually says, we write this to make our joy complete. This is where the joy comes in. And it's not that John is changing his mind along the way and saying, uh, I write this so much to make our joy complete, and then later on he says, no, actually, never mind. No, here's the real reason I'm writing. It's all tied together. The same kind of thing the whole way through. The reasons that he's giving here when he says, I am writing to you, dear children. This is 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 12 to 14. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I hope you can tell right there he's not changing his mind every line and saying, no, 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 actually, here's what it is. But it's all tied together. It's when we understand what John is writing about here, this is where our joy comes from. And this is a, not always an easy, easy thing to hold on to because we live in a world where joy seems to slip so easily from our grasp. 
particularly at this time of year when griefs are highlighted and joys are sometimes obscured. And what John is saying is, even in the midst of everything else, we can hold on firmly and securely to joy. But that's not the kind of joy that the world offers. It's the kind that only comes because of Christmas. So, let me take you through this passage and we'll see how that comes through. But before I do that, I want to ask everybody a question. And that is this. If you could be any age that you wanted to be, and you would just live the rest of your life at that age, what age would you be? I'll give you a moment to think about that one. Go ahead and pick your age. You could pick any age to be. We'll go from zero to, say, 120. You pick. You'll live the rest of your life at that age. All right. I hope you've come up with your number. So you're still thinking. It's really not that, e- that difficult, or it's not that easy, to come up with a number. Because every age kind of has their advantages and disadvantages. And as soon as you land on one, you're like, oh, that'd be a good age. Well, on the other hand, <laughs> I don't know about that. Did anybody pick the age you are right now? Not very many. Isn't that odd? We are the age we are right now. And yet there does seem to be something that, uh, you know, when you're young, you just can't wait to get older, and then you get old, and you, you know, try to hide the fact that you're getting older, and you keep acting like you're younger again. It seems we live in this uh, eternal state of dissatisfaction with where we are right now. Today I want to change that. I want us to be okay with where we are. When uh, my oldest son, Benjamin... <laughs> my oldest son, Benjamin, was about six months old. I remember thinking to myself, oh, I hope he doesn't get any older than this. I just want him to stay this age forever. This is the best. You know, a few more months go by, and he grows some more and changes, and I would think, oh, no, this, this is the best. I don't know what I was thinking before. This is the best. And by the time he was about two and a half, I finally realized I just kept doing that. And then I started thinking, wait, I hope this doesn't stop. <laughs> But at some point, I'm like, yep, that was the best. Now it's horrible. (laughs) And so that became my prayer, is that God would always, whatever ages my kids were, that that would be a cherished time. That that age would be the best for right then. And so far, that has been the case. Although turning 14 next week, you get a little... Maybe a little nervous on that. Um, <laughs> see, now, Benjamin, there's pressure now. Because in a few years, we got all these witnesses who are going to come to me and say, you still think it's the best? And I'm going to have to say yes. So we got, we got pressure. Okay. Kidding. Now, here's the reason why whatever age we are can be the best. And it doesn't have to do with our actual chronological age. It's because there are advantages and disadvantages with every age. But here's the the beautiful thing. In Jesus, we get the advantages of every age at the same time, at every moment of our Christian lives. The advantages of every age. Think about this. When you're a baby, 
Do you remember how much you stressed about tax season? (laughs) Not at all. Tax season would come and go and you were none the wiser because there were other people who just took care of that for you. Do you remember how much meal planning you did when you were, you know, one year old? No. There were people who took care of that for you. There were people who paid the mortgage. There were people who changed your sheets and worse. (laughs) There was a level of dependence where really if there was nobody taking care of you, you wouldn't have made it. But there was somebody taking care of you. That's why we're still here. But you had a dependence, and there was a certain advantage to that because you couldn't do it on your own. This is why we don't send toddlers off to college and say, go get a degree or send them off to work, go get a job, go get a house. They can't do it on their own. They need people to take care of them. Listen to this. John refers to all of us as children. There's a certain poetic structure here. I'm not going to go through the whole of how that is, but it's just so richly layered. But he says two times, calls us children in this passage. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And the second time, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Now, the first three times he's talking, he's talking mostly about Jesus. And the second three phrases, he's talking about God the Father. And so, Look at this first one again. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. On account of his name. Not on our name. No matter how long you have been in church, no matter how many times you have heard preaching or read through the Bible, if you still have this understanding that what it means to be a Christian is, well, I just have to do more good things than bad things, you have never grasped the good news of the gospel. Of what it means not to be accepted because of me or what I've done. But that I'm accepted because of who he is and what he's done. That's the good news. That's the exchange that takes place. This is why he says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved, that we could live the life that he earned. I write to you, dear children, because we couldn't do it on our own. We're dependent, just like little children. But it's not just a matter of having this dependence on somebody else. The second time he says it, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. We are children who have been adopted into a family. And there's a relational aspect to that. Our sins have not just been forgiven so that we can go about our merry way. Our sins have been forgiven that we could be brought into this family of God, that we could know the Father, we could have a relationship with Him. Like children to a loving Father. And so, do you see what we have there? At whatever stage of life we're in, we have the advantages of being children. And children of our Heavenly Father. But, there are some downsides with childhood. Not a lot of wisdom. If you, if you deal with children on a regular basis... I'm sure you have examples at the ready of children not having a lot of wisdom. But the next thing he says is, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he repeats it the second time. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Who's the him that we know? Is it God? Is it Jesus? 
Yes. The one who is from the beginning. And in fact, in the first, uh, the first time he talks about this, the hymn, I believe, he's talking about Jesus. And the second time he says it, the same words, he's talking about God the Father. But this should make sense because in the very beginning of this letter, he's already said that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. That's who our fellowship is with. This is who it is that we know. The Father and the Son who have been in a relationship from the very beginning, always. And what he's saying here is that we are those who are caught up into that relationship. By the Spirit of God, we get caught up into that relationship that we can know them. And not just know about them. Not just know about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in some sort of academic or intellectual way. Not like we know about celebrities or we know about uh, distant Facebook friends, friends in quotes, but really knowing God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a relational way. See, there's something that we've kind of lost more recently. If you watch um, any of the sitcoms that have families in them over the last 15 years or so, you may not know this, but there was a time when fathers were respected. Anymore, you don't see that portrayed anywhere. But that was, the fathers were respected. They were respected because they had wisdom and they had character that had been developed over the years and they could uh, pass this wisdom and this character on to their children. And of course, this is particularly true in cases where not only are you growing up to look physically more like your parents, but when there was a family business that was going to be taken over, the father is teaching not just here's how you shave or you know things like that, how you tie your tie, but here is how to do the things that you are going to be doing when you grow up. And here is the kind of character you're going to have to have to be able to do the things that you're going to do when you grow up. There is a wisdom and there is a character that comes not just from being alive a long time, but from having this living and loving and trusting relationship with God the Father. And it so impacts who we are that it actually refers to us now as fathers. As those who have the character of him stamped on us that we become those who teach others, that we become those who have a wisdom from God that is, surpasses our earthly years, and a wisdom that may even look like foolishness to the rest of the world. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1? He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And a little bit later, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The more we come to know and trust God, the more we become like him. And the more we get the advantages, even now, of what it's like to be mature as fathers. By the way, I know that there's a lot of uh, male imagery here. We've got the children, it doesn't say which, but then we've got fathers and then young men. And so if, as women, you're feeling particularly left out and you're saying, this isn't about me, it is about you. It's about everybody. In the same way that, you know, you kind of have to make a little adjustment uh, to see it there. But in the same way that men kind of have to make the adjustment when Paul refers to the whole of the church as the bride of Christ. 
And so, that is that just talking about women being the bride? No, it's talking about all of us. So we all have to kind of make those adjustments. But it's not. This is not just a. Um, this is not a gender thing. We'll get past that. Um, but the third one is here, here's the difficulty though with the maturity that usually comes as you age. You get this wisdom and you have this character, but you lack the energy and the strength you used to have. And so you go and you watch uh, the high school athletes, their various sporting events, and you sigh and you say, ah, to be young again. But, John says next, I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says again, I write to you young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We have the advantages now of youth, whatever age physically we are, because we have this endurance and this strength that cannot be overcome. You know, in Isaiah uh, 40, 29 and 31, <laughs> does he give strength to the weary? And uh, how does it go, Jonathan? He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Do you hear that? This strength and this uh, endurance that we have as we hope in God, that is not tied to our physical age and it's not tied to our physical energy level. But it's because our battles, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, our battles not against flesh and blood, but we have this spiritual battles that we are waging. And this is where the real strength and endurance is needed. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do things physically. We certainly do. If you remember a couple years ago when we went through the book of Nehemiah, there was a pattern to Nehemiah's life that we should all have. And that is whatever, there was kind of a three-part thing. There was something would happen. Nehemiah's first response was, pray. And second response was, act. (laughs) And that was the constant pattern. You read through the whole book and you see something happens, Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah acts. But he's acting on what his relationship is with God. And sometimes we get this backwards, or we think it's an either or. We either act or we pray. This is what we saw on the cover of the Daily Mail last week, you know, there, where there's this prayer shaming that's going on, where people are putting these two up against each other. You either pray or you act, but there's no way to do both. And we say as Christians, of course you do both. Of course you pray And then you act, but you have to act out of your prayer. Not act first and then pray, you know, afterwards, like, okay, God, I I did this, so make it make it not mess up too bad. (laughs) We pray first. We seek God first. We put our hope in Him before in our own strength. And then not out of our own strength, but out of His strength, we act. Do you see the difference there? It is life changing. And I don't use those words lightly. This is where, as John has written all of this, he says, these are the reasons I'm writing to you. That you may know, as that you have, whatever your physical age is, that you have all the advantages spiritually, because of Jesus, of dependent children, 
of wise fathers and of strong young men. That because the word of God lives in us, because we have a living and trusting relationship with Jesus, there is nothing that can overcome us. Let me read read to you this passage one more time. And I want you to listen for the joy that can be ours if we really understand this. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We live in a world that wants to hide the joy, rob rob us of joy. And we will see evidence of that everywhere we look. But when that comes, and when all we can see are the reasons, are the negative aspects, in the same way that when we started thinking about what age we would pick, if we could be any age, and you start going, well, I don't know about that. We can always find the negatives. Let me encourage us today to go back to what John is talking about. Remember where our strength comes from where our hope comes from, the relationship that we have with God and all through Jesus who did for us what we could not do on our own. And out of that, live powerful lives of joy no matter what our circumstances. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.